Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, June 28th. Can artificial intelligence be used to find innovative ways to improve our health care system? Professor Ross Mitchell believes so. He's the Alberta Health Services Chair in AI in Health, and he joins us to explain how the technology can effectively be used to drive healthcare innovation in our province. Is Canada on the right track to address climate change? We'll discuss the recently released National Adaptation Strategy and the impact it'll have on the fight against climate change with Ryan Ness, Director of Adaptation for the Canadian Climate Institute. And finally, Stampede, just over a week away, Yay! this year's edition marks the 100th anniversary of Flapjack Flippin'. We hear about the history of the popular pancake breakfasts from Dave Middleton, chair of the Calgary Stampede Promotion Committee. Research from the University of Alberta is working to leverage artificial intelligence to drive healthcare innovation. Joining us to discuss is Ross Mitchell, Alberta Health Services Chair in AI in Health, a professor in the Department of Medicine and an adjunct professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Alberta. Good morning to you. Good morning. Can you explain AI's role in healthcare and how it could be used to actually drive healthcare innovation? Sure. So AI is uh, a new tool for humanity, if you will. I call it a power tool for complexity. It's a, a new way for humans to deal with complex scenarios and situations, particularly around data. Uh, and healthcare is all about complex situations and complex data. Doctors have all kinds of different inputs coming in. Some of them agree, some of them conflict with each other, and some of them have missing information. And from all of that, they have to try and figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. So what we're trying to do is give them some new new power tools to make their jobs easier and more enjoyable. Ross, your title, AHS Chair in AI in Health. How long have we had AI involved in healthcare? Well, I'm the first uh, to hold that chair in Alberta. I've been working in AI and healthcare myself for probably about 30 years. But um, what's changed recently is the huge advances in both the computational power and our ability to access and process large amounts of data. And that actually leads to one of the prime uh, advantages of uh, prime Alberta advantage, if you will. We have a single healthcare system for the whole province, and we have data aggregated across the whole province, protected behind the firewall and secure. But we've got data on all people in the province of Alberta, and we've got about 20 years of that data. Nobody else has that. It's incredibly rare and incredibly powerful. Wow. Can you can you break down a little bit more, maybe in, in, in plain English, how your data-first approach to research differs from traditional hypothesis-driven approach? What, what is the biggest difference? Sure. So uh, in traditional sciences, um, we are taught, and I was taught in grad school, you start with a hypothesis and you conduct an experiment and uh, you collect data that confirms or refutes that and then um, you revise and continue. And, and that's very powerful and very effective and it's driven most of the advances that we've seen in the 20th century. But uh, another way of doing it is to start by looking at the data and looking for patterns in the data and use that to try and inform hypotheses. So it sort of completes the circle, if you will. You go from hypotheses to data back to hypotheses again. And um, to only use half of that circle, you're, you're missing something. So that's why uh, we're seeing so many amazing things with AI, because we've got these new tools now that let us find patterns in data like we never could before. So it can go back and scan all the information that might have some sort of relation to whatever you're looking at, whatever trial you might be doing, for example, right? 
Right, right. So, yeah, that's a, a prime example. We want to look at patient characteristics in healthcare and determine, um, you know, do they, for example, were there any other patients like this treated in the last five years and how how were they treated and what were their outcomes like? That kind of information would be very useful to healthcare providers just to be able to see what happened, especially when you have a vast uh, collection of data like we have in Alberta. How I'm just wondering because this is just super advanced and unique, and this is something that you've wrapped yourself around and you know and very much immersed yourself in. Uh, how accepted has it been by traditionalists who have a traditional approach to to such things? Well, it it's it's changing. It's been very difficult throughout my career to get funding for this kind of work, and I've often had grants rejected because. It, um, the claim is that it's not scientific because you're not starting with a hypothesis. You're starting with the data. And you get comments like, um, you know, going on a fishing expedition or throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. And, um, you know, my response is, well, when a patient comes into the emergency room and they have a, a sharp pain in their abdomen, um, what you do is you do an ultrasound of, of their abdomen and you look through those images and you try and see if there's something wrong. Well, that's you're, you're looking at the for patterns in the data. You're not starting with a hypothesis. There's a couple of things you think it might be, but you really got to collect some data and look at it to see, you know, what's what's going wrong. And as you're scrolling through, you might notice something completely unrelated. And then you send that person for a test. They maybe um, take a tissue sample and uh, do a biopsy and then send that to the lab. Now you're getting into the area of um, hypothesis-driven research. A, a lab assay is, a, is an experiment. And you conduct that experiment and get the results, and that may provide you with a diagnosis for something you didn't even know the patient had. So in medicine, this loop happens all the time. You start off by mining through data. Radiologists do this on a daily basis. They come to a, a conclusion, and then that may inform a further experiment, if you will, which is a definitive diagnosis and then a treatment procedure. So, yeah, it's been it's been tough. The other thing we chuckle about is when we get our grants denied by folks who uh, say that what we're doing is not scientific, we, we, we can console a little bit and maybe and hope that they are driving home in their car on autopilot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Ross, you know, when it comes to this, obviously we've said it before, we're not putting this AI genie back in the bottle. So what do you see in the next handful of years ahead, even for those purists who aren't willing to accept AI right now, they're, they're probably going to have to. But how do you think that that's going to, you know, artificial intelligence, how is it going to affect the healthcare system and, and science itself as we move forward? Yeah, so it's going to be massive. And our goal is to make sure that, um, you know, the things that we're working on are going to have a really positive outcome. That's that's the goal. I mean, AI, a powerful tool, any powerful tool can be used for good or bad. Our goal is to make sure that it's used for good and used for good in healthcare. And so we, we think, you know, others have described this as, you know, as fundamental as the stethoscope or learning to wash your hands. Like it's going to have that kind of impact on healthcare. We expect it to be huge. So uh, th- that's what we want to do is put powerful tools in the hands of healthcare workers in the front line with the goal of, you know, improving outcomes, but also reducing costs. That's the, the dual goal. And and the third objective is to make the treatment process or the whole process of delivering healthcare more pleasurable for the providers. Very interesting topic. Mm-hmm. We appreciate your time, Ross. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling. Thank you.
That's Ross Mitchell, Alberta Health Services Chair in AI and Health, a professor in the Department of Medicine and in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Alberta. The federal government has released its final version of National Climate Adaptation Strategy. Uh, where do we stand on the global effort to fight climate change, and are we doing enough? And are we making a difference? Joining us to discuss is Ryan Ness, Director of Adaptation for the Canadian Climate Institute. Good morning to you, Ryan. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, can you break down the final version of the National Climate Adaptation Strategy that came out yesterday, your biggest takeaways? And the, the National Adaptation Strategy is the federal government's document strategy in which they set out the main direction that Canada needs to take to be resilient to a changing climate, to make sure that a, a harsher and more volatile climate uh, of the future uh, and that we're already experiencing doesn't threaten the well-being and, and prosperity of, of, of people across the country. So it, it lays out objectives in the areas of, of being ready for disasters, about protecting health, protecting nature, protecting infrastructure, and protecting our economy. And in each of those, it, it sets some clear targets that we can measure progress against, like uh, eliminating heat-related deaths by 2040 or identifying our 200 most uh, flood-prone areas in the country and protecting communities in those zones. So it's, a, uh, it's an important step. It's a first step. Uh, it sets out a, a high-level vision, and now it's all about translating that vision into reality. So how do we do that, Ryan? You know, how do we translate it into reality to make sure that, that, that what we're doing is the right thing? That's that is the the important question is what are the steps that need to be taken in order to get to those those goals and and those targets. And it's great that we have targets, but you know it's not going to be easy. You can't just snap your fingers and and, and uh, protect people from from heat waves uh, overnight. It requires changing things like building codes. Uh, it requires changing the way health systems work across the country, uh, and that requires. Um, not only the federal government to invest and to take action, but to work with uh, provincial and local authorities and governments as well. So to see now plans of action, and the government has committed to developing one with each of the provinces and territories uh, that lay out the roadmap for uh, the path from high-level goal to, to concrete action and change that, that makes a difference in people's lives. But do these do these investments? And you mentioned long term, looking long term. Do they make economic sense in the long run? Because obviously costs are going to go up in years to come. Is this something that's sustainable for us? It, it's a great question, and the the answer is that it's not sustainable to not invest more in in adaptation. Time after time, studies, including our own at the Climate Institute, show that. If you invest up front in, in strengthening infrastructure and protecting people and preparing people for the, the, the harsher climate of the future, it's much less expensive than paying the cost of damage when that future climate spawns disasters. Um, take the 2021 floods in, in BC, for example. Not only was there devastation to communities uh, across the lower part of the province and, and the damage associated with that, but it virtually shut down that area's economy and big parts of Canada's economy for days or weeks, uh, which had additional sort of billions of dollars in costs. So, you know, investing front and, and strengthening the infrastructure that, that washed out, making sure that, that 
berms and flood protections that protect communities are functioning, uh, while it might seem expensive up front, will pay for itself many times over as the climate continues to change. Ryan, your thoughts, you know, on where Canada stands with our climate change goals, are they stringent enough? Do they need to go further? We are moving in the right direction. We have the right targets when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And obviously we need the rest of the world to be on board with that as well. Canada can't control the climate on its own from home. We need to also encourage our partners around the world to drop their emissions because fewer emissions means less warming, which means less climate change, less storms, less floods, and less fires for us to have to deal with in the first place. But the the reality is that the climate has changed and will continue to change because of the emissions we've already put into the into the atmosphere. So we have to do something uh, to prepare ourselves for that change. And, and up to this point, we haven't been uh, giving enough focus to the adaptation side of the equation. We've been working hard on mitigation. Now it's time to elevate our, our adaptation game to the same level. How about on a global scale, Ryan? You know, do we stack up to the other nations? Are we doing enough or are we leading the pack? We are, compared to, say, our peer nations in in Western Europe, we're behind the curve when it comes to adaptation. uh, Some of those countries, most of those countries have had an adaptation, a national adaptation strategy for some time. Uh, Some are even on their second, third, or fourth versions as they sort of update it um, continually. Uh, and we're not we're not spending the same amount uh, as a share of our economy on on adaptation. Other other countries, again in Europe, are spending a much larger sum on an annual basis um, on adaptation relative to the size of, as they recognize that this is not this is not money thrown away. This is money invested in in long term prosperity and long term cost savings. Ryan, thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ryan Nass, Director of Adaptation for the Canadian Climate Institute. Nine days until the greatest outdoor show on earth begins. And let's face it, the Calgary Stampede and the entire Calgary community has been flipping flapjacks for the last 100 years. And with just over a week away until the greatest outdoor show on earth, we have to talk about the history of pancakes in our city. Joining us this morning, Dave Middleton, who is the chair of the Calgary Stampede Promotion Committee. Good morning to you, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Glad to be here. This is awesome. Okay, Stampede, we're so pumped. We're, the countdown is on, obviously, but even more so, we're pumped about pancakes. 100 years of pancakes. How did the tradition, how did pancakes get to be tied with the Stampede? Well, it's interesting because it's also the 100th year of chuck wagons, and the two are actually tied together. Um, back in 1923, 100 years ago, the Calgary Stampede hosted its first ever chuck wagon race as an ode to the Western tradition of breaking camp and racing home for dinner. Uh, that same year, a uh, chuck wagon racer by the name of Jack Morton set up camp on Stephen Avenue, what is now called Stephen Avenue, and served pancakes from the back of his chuck wagon. A hundred years later, we continued to, to gather around those griddles across the city for, for Stampede, and uh, now we definitely know that Jack was on to something. Um, he knew the Stampede wasn't just about heroes and horses, but heritage and community, and what is more community than a, than a pancake breakfast. So he started a tradition that thousands of volunteers have continued with millions of pancakes cooked. So 
that's uh we're we're celebrating a hundred years and a lot of pancakes. Yeah, so let's talk about that. A century of tradition. Is the Calgary Stampede going to do anything special to mark the the one hundredth? Um, we have we we are. I um I'm I've been sworn to secrecy, but it, <laughs> it should be uh, you know people should keep their keep their ears to 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 the radio and the grindstone. So um, we we do have some things. Uh, that are on the horizon, but we also still have our major caravan breakfasts, our batter boys breakfasts, and and uh, and of course the the breakfast down on Park. Dave, do we have any sense of the number of flapjacks pancakes that have been served over the years to Calgarians, or how many you might even do this year? Um, you know that's 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 really difficult. <laughs> um because there there are that we have three committees that do pancake breakfast the the promotion committee does with their batter boys uh downtown attractions of course does rope square and and other breakfasts during a year and then of course we have caravan breakfasts, which are the bigger ones Mm -hmm. so it's it uh, uh suffice to say a lot of pancakes a cabillion i think might be the actual number (laughs) We, I would think so. If you went back through the years, it's it's going to be a pretty high number. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I know I'm going to celebrate by having a hundred pancakes this stampede <laughs> on my own. So I'm going to only, at once. Only it out? Well, over ten days. Okay. It's only ten a day. Think yeah, about it, Sue. Uh, but uh, Dave, when it comes to to the different ones through the community, as you mentioned, in different corners of the city, uh, different strip malls, businesses, organizations, community associations having their own, it's hard to, to keep tabs of those. But the ones that are Calgary Stampede, where do we find out where the the big caravan breakfast will be? during the next uh, well in 10 days uh you can go online um and uh it will it will tell you where the where the big caravan breakfasts are um and the the of course the rope square will definitely be half pancakes every every day through the 10 days and then we the batter boys will be out in the community and and you'll be able to uh to see them as well so there's there, there'll be lots of opportunity, um, but yeah, just go online and and you'll be able to onto Calgary Stampede, and you'll be able to to find out where those caravan breakfasts are. Now, Dave, I'm just opening up my new Calgary Stampede app on my phone that I downloaded yesterday. Our 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 flapjacks and stampede um, pancake breakfasts, etc., on the app this year. Uh, that's a good question because I I don't deal with the okay fair the, fair. The, social media part of it fair so. enough it, it is nice that there's a new app for everything that's going on down at stampede so we'll push that a little bit but you know really appreciate your time this morning we'll talk pancakes any day you want dave perfect and let's eat them too absolutely <laughs> you know it thank you so much for joining us and uh we'll see you down at stampede soon thank you thanks dave Yahoo. middleton chair of the calgary stampede promotion committee